I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. After a devastating 116-115 overtime loss for the Celts at the hands of the 76ers, and we now have a series, people. It's 2-2. We'll also chat with Stephen Ruiz from The Ringer, The Ringer NFL Show. He had a great article up. Does Bill Belichick have a master plan for Mac? So it was a fun conversation we had with Stephen about Mac Jones entering year three, Bill O'Brien, and he has a really bold take on the Patriots defense that we'll get to as well. But let's get to the Celtics here. How do you not get a shot off at the end of the game? How does that happen? I don't understand. This isn't the first time this has happened to the Celtics before either. First of all, what are they doing? They waited until six seconds left to get going. If you're not going to call a timeout there, get going. And I don't understand the idea of not going quickly there if you're not taking a timeout, right? You're down by a point. You do not have the lead. So if you go quickly, even if you miss, you can follow on the rebound. And it's still, even if they had both three free throws, it's a three-point game. And then you can call a timeout the next time down and get the ball at midcourt. By the way, Joe Mazzulla had two timeouts left. So there were two ways to handle the end of the game. First of all, the one that I think most people would say is the right idea, which I would have done, is call a timeout, set something up. Call a timeout, set something up at the end of the game, and make sure your best players are getting the ball. Or... You go quickly and you get those two opportunities that I was alluding to, right? So the Celtics, they did neither one of those. They decided to do neither. They decided, hey, let's not take a timeout and let's go slowly. Like the players deserve criticism for this too. It's not just the coach. The coach certainly deserves to be criticized here, but that play is just so infuriating to me watching it back. 16 seconds left when Marcus Smart catches the inbounds pass. Why do you wait? until there's about four seconds left if you're a Jason Tatum to get going. So they really, from when Marcus got the ball until when Tatum started to attack, 12 seconds came off the clock. That's why you don't get a shot up. You're going way too late. I just, I don't understand that whatsoever. And here's the problem. If you go, like I said, and you decide, let's give yourself two opportunities, 
That's fine. Okay. I have no problem with that whatsoever. If that was the thought process that, hey, you want to go quickly here. And Missoula basically hinted at that after the game. But if that is the case, okay, fine with it. You got to get yourself the two opportunities, though. You have to go quick there. You cannot wait until the end like they did. But here's the thing that I would say in terms of the coach. Once you see that Smart and Tatum aren't getting into things quickly, like it even takes Smart a little while to give Tatum the ball. Once you see that's happening and there's like 10, 11 seconds left and you realize they're not going to get going quickly, then you got to immediately call a timeout, right? I really don't care about, hey, maybe the Sixers get their best defenders on the court, right? That's fine if they do that. It's not like they have unbelievable defensive personnel to begin with. And the Celtics were scoring relatively easily in the fourth quarter, in the third quarter, and of course in overtime as well. So if that's the case, I'm fine with them bringing their defensive personnel on if it means you're actually going to put something together and actually have a play rather than waiting for your best player to go with four seconds left. So to me, that's when you need to make the adjustment. And this is one of the fears we sort of had all season long with Joe Mazzulla, right? Will he do the right thing in the right moment? Will he be able to think on the fly? And the original decision is fine. I'm not too upset about the fact that he wanted to let them play it out. What I'm more upset about is if that's the path you want to take, you also have to be opening, open rather to adjusting there and saying, okay, the play's dead. Now it's time for me to take the time out. Now it's time for me to set something up, right? But what you can't do is just not make the correction. And unfortunately, that's what Missoula did. So I get it. It's his ethos. He wants to let them play. But when a, ser- a scenario like that happens, you have to realize it in real time. And Joe Missoula did not realize it in real time, right? And by the way, Tatum, he's got to be better there too. It's not just Missoula. He's got to go quicker. He has to understand the situation. This is a guy that's going to be all NBA for the second straight year, first team all NBA, I should say, for the second straight year. And I get it. I would have liked to see the coach bail him out, but the best player has got to be better. And he's got to know the situation there as well. The other thing is this. They shouldn't have been in that situation. The possession before was just bad defensively. It was terrible. The 76ers take a timeout. They get the ball to Embiid on the low block. And the Celtics, remember, they're up 115 to 113. This was after a timeout, as I mentioned, okay? You have to know, nobody leave James Harden. He's the best player on the court right now. Don't leave James Harden. What does he do? He had already hit five threes. Well, Jalen Brown, when Embiid is in the post, he just peels off James Harden. And Embiid, who is not a great passer out of the post, as we've seen, He has a wide open pass to James Harden who knocks down a three so they take a one point lead. There's no way that Jalen Brown should be doubling off of James Harden. That's the last guy you're going to double off and you don't even need to double there. Embiid was struggling at the end of the game. Make him hit that shot and it's still a tie game even if he hits it and you have an opportunity to win the game on the other end. But what you cannot give up there is a three and you desperately cannot give up a wide open corner three, a corner three, one of the most efficient shots in basketball to the best player on the court. That is just mind numbing. Jalen Brown is a very, very good player. He made a boneheaded decision for a great player. That's a really bad decision. And Tatum late in the game made the bad decision too going late. I mean, these are your guys. They're supposed to take you home. They have got to be better in these late game situations. And that's not even all of it. I mean, think about all the missed opportunities down the stretch in the fourth quarter. 150 left. 105-102 after Harden gets a bucket. Smart takes a step back three. What is that? He's on the left wing. He takes a step back three. That's a terrible shot when you have a three-point lead. And what it leads to the other way is transition for Philadelphia. And eventually it ends up with P.J. Tucker getting an and one off a rebound. He makes it 105-105. That shot is going to, the chances of it going in are very small to begin with, with Marcus Smart taking that shot. And he hit some big shots in this game, made some big plays and all that. I, I totally understand that. But My point being is, 
it's just there's no upside with that shot. He's not going to hit it. And when they do get the rebound, Philadelphia, they're going to get an easy shot on the other end because you're all out of whack in terms of your floor space and getting back on defense. Okay, then 112 to 111 in overtime with 207 left. The Celtics have the lead. Smart makes this pocket pass. He's trying to make a pocket pass to Al Horford rolling. There's already a defender behind Al Horford to help anyway. So it wasn't like he was going to do anything when he caught that ball off the roll. And Marcus Smart wasn't double teamed. So I don't understand why he's trying to make a very difficult thread the needle type pass to Al Horford on the roll. What's the upside of that? He gets the ball and he has to figure out who he's passing to anyway. That to me was another bad decision. And even when the Celtics, they were making that run back, Brogdon missed a layup when they were down 92-85, just smoked it off the backboard. 92-85, Tatum misses one of the two free throws, right? With the score 92-86, Tatum smokes a layup off the backboard. 94-88, Brogdon is then stripped by James Harden, and they score on the other end 96-88. A missed free throw, two smoked layups by two of your best players, Brogdon and Tatum, and Brogdon with a very careless turnover, and he's usually not reckless with the ball. He just, he could see James Harden. He was in front of him. He just helped off the guy that he was covering, and he was easily stripped him. I mean, that stuff just can't happen. And then you really, you had him in the second half, and Bede was gassed. He was fucking gassed, but it was the late game execution. That's what really killed this team. And if you look at it now, they're now three and four in clutch games in the postseason, which means with less than five minutes to go when the scoring margin is within five points, Denver, who's trying to win a championship as well, they're four and one. The Lakers are three and oh. The Heat are three and one. Okay. Good teams should be able to win in these late game scenarios. The Celtics right now are three and four. They lost two of the four to Atlanta. They're just, they haven't been good. And their clutch numbers during the regular season were actually really good after they weren't good last season. I'm talking about the team overall in terms of the team record and clutch games. They were good this season. But last postseason, or I should say last regular season, they had issues. And clearly what we've seen in these games, they really have trouble closing teams out. And the other thing is, I'm running through all these issues late, but where were they to start this game? Philly's first 31 possessions of the game, they had 44 points. That's a 141.9 offensive rating. And I've told you multiple times, Sacramento led the league. Their offensive rating was slightly less than 119. This team had a 141.9 offensive rating in their first 31 possessions of the game, which to me, that jumps out to me and says, how does this keep happening? The Celtics are not ready in these games defensively. I don't understand why they don't always bring the necessary effort to start these games. It's just baffling to me. And look, Tatum had a really nice second half. Nobody would dismiss that, although... Late, he, of course, had that issue. He didn't go quick enough and all that, but he was really active defensively late, had a couple of nice blocks. The one on Maxi comes to mind. But where was he in the first half? He didn't score in the first quarter, and he played the entire first quarter. How do you play 12 minutes in the first quarter? You're a first-team All-NBA guy, and you don't score. It's almost impossible to do. And just running through some of the stuff there, he was picked by Embiid, okay? Embiid was the screener, and he actually picked Jason Tatum. A seven foot three guy, Joel Embiid, should never pick you if you're a wing. It just shouldn't happen, especially a guy of Jason Tatum's skill set, right? Then he missed a wide open three, and you could tell early he just did not have a shot. And I thought maybe get him off the ball, get him some easier opportunities, don't have all the playmaking duties in his hands. Let somebody else run the offense, whether it be Brogdon or Smart, who are on the court at that particular point in time. But then he missed a wide open three where nobody was around him. Remember, it's almost like he was delayed. He's so wide open, missed that one. Then he missed a floater trying to go over and bead. He was 0 of 5 in the first quarter, 0 of 2 from deep, one turnover, one assist. And then, <laughs> I mean, he was stripped by Niang at one point during this game, and he's crying for a call. George Niang and Joel Embiid stole the ball from Jason Tatum today. Then he bricked a three in the second quarter. 
He bricked a fadeaway over Maxi. Finally hit that long two at the end of the second quarter to make it 56-47. Those were his first points of the game. I mean, it's just aggravating about Tatum, right? He goes 9 of 20, 1 of 6 from deep. And I, like I said, I thought he had really big moments in the second half. And that would have been the story if they won, but they didn't. And he was part of the reason they didn't win because of the way that he played in the first half and the play down the stretch where he didn't go right away. But he goes 9 of 20, 1 of 6 from deep, as we mentioned. So you look at the last three games, 11 of 27, 3 of 14, the game that he was in foul trouble. So now he's 23 of 61 in the last three games in this series, 37.7% from the field. It's just, you can't have that from your best player, especially a guy that's supposed to be one of the best players in the NBA, which I'll get to that in a second, because these other superstars, they don't have stinkers like this all the time. You look at the rest of the guys that are like the guys right now in the postseason. Booker's averaging almost 37 a game. He's shooting 60% from the floor and 48% from deep. Butler is averaging 34.4 points per game, 56% from the field, 40% from deep. Steph Curry, 30 per game, and I know they lost on Saturday night, 48% from the field, 39.8% from deep. Jokic, he's shooting 50% from the field, 50.3% from the field, 46.9% from deep. Tatum, entering this game, 46.1% from the field and 35.4% from deep. And of course, those numbers will go down. He just doesn't match up with these other superstars across the league. And if you just look at his playoff run so far, you tell me how many times has he had these stinkers? Game five against Atlanta, 19 points, 8 of 21, 38.1%, 1 of 10 from deep. Game six against the Warriors going back to the finals, 12 points, 6 of 18, so that's 33.3%, 1 of 4 from deep, that's 25%. Game three against the Heat, 10 points, 3 of 14, 21.4%, 1 of 7 from deep. Game three against Milwaukee, 10 points, 4 of 19, 21.1%, 0 of 6. All these are losses for the Celtics. He's like the Anthony Davis of wings. Like, you just don't know if he's going to show up or not. And Tatum has and Tatum has all these bad games, all these stinkers that you just don't see from other, these other superstars. So all this other shit in terms of the late game execution, it was all an issue in this game. I'm not diminishing that whatsoever. That's the story. The late game execution continues to be an issue for the Celtics team. And they're playing with their food again. They're making this. You win this game, it's over. And now you're making it more difficult on yourself as we saw all last year during the postseason, too. But all this other shit, your best player needs to be better. Bottom line, I don't get it. He made huge plays, like I said, down the stretch, but he needs to be more consistent. And now we have a track record of Jason Tatum in the postseason. He is very, very inconsistent. He just isn't one of the guys in the league yet. And maybe he can accomplish that by the end of this postseason run, but he's had so many stinkers throughout his postseason career. And I get he's really young, but do you feel good about him late in games? I don't. I don't. And I know he hit that huge step back over Maxi that maybe could have been a foul, but he hit that shot. I'm getting pumped and all that different type of stuff. But then I'm like, I don't feel confident with him at the end of games. I don't. Like, even going back to Paul Pierce, I felt like Pierce is going to get to the elbow. He's going to hit his big shot. I just don't feel that way about Jason Tatum. And he continues to have these bad games. And look at it in this short postseason run. Think about this. How many times has he been the best player on the court? You go to today, it's Harden without question, 42. Game three, even though he shot it poorly, he had a nice bounce back game from his game two performance. But I thought Jalen, he was the story because of his defense. I would give it to Jalen. Game two, it was definitely Jalen. Tatum had seven points. Game one, it was Harden who had the 45. Go back to the Atlanta series. Game six, Jalen to me was better with the 32 points. He shot the ball better. Game five, we all know it was Trey Young, right? Game four, it was Jalen. Tatum was four of 13 from deep. Game three, we all know it was Trey Young. Game two, it was Jason Tatum of that series. He had 29, 10, and 6. He was great. He was outstanding. He was the best player on the court. You can't even argue that. 
Game one, it was Jalen with 29 and 12. So by my math, and maybe you disagree on one of them, but say I even give you two, two of the postseason games, he's been the best player on the court. This is a guy that's going to be all NBA first team for the second time. And you're telling me this Celtics team has already played 10 playoff games, right? I mean, we're talking about four against Philly and six against Atlanta, and he's been the best player in two of them. That's just not good enough. That's why right now he still needs to make another jump in terms of being in that group. And he's still young enough where two years from now, like when he gets to be Devin Booker's age, he could be that guy. But right now he's just not there yet. And he has so like the margin of error for Tatum. No other superstar has something like this. I mean, this is like when Curry plays bad, they lose. If Booker ever plays a bad game, they're definitely going to lose in Phoenix, right? So Tatum and Jimmy Butler, I mean, sometimes his team will bail him out. But I mean, Tatum, he has, this guy was a no-show. He was a no-show in the first half, and he still had a chance to win the game miraculously. So it's just, he has so much around him, so much to work with, and he's just got to avoid these stinkers all the time. And I just right now, like, the, the Tatum stock, it's going down where these other guys in the postseason, Devin Booker's stock is going way up. Jokic is already the two-time MVP. His stock is going up. Jimmy Butler's stock is going up. Jalen Brown, I would even say, his stock's going up. Jason Tatum's stock is going down right now. Unfortunately, I hate to say it because I love the guy as a player. It's just he's not consistent in the postseason. And the first half really hurt this team. I, I thought Jalen, he came out with a ton of energy in this game, right, where right away he gets going right by Tucker. Then he got right by and beat Ann Tucker. He had a corner three, and then he had a step back three over Harden. He back cut to get a a dunk to make it 14-11, coast to coast to make it 32-26. Then he found Brogdon in transition for an open three. But I, I just don't understand, like, why, when, when you look at it from Jalen's perspective, like, where is he going? Like, this is the second time in this series that he, he just, like, has disappeared in the second half. He's, like, not aggressive anymore. So that's the issue I'd have with Jalen. Where the hell did he go in the second half? And then I would say this, by the way, usually these wired segments, we get in the NBA, you know, like the coaches are wired up or Grant Williams and B, those guys are wired up. Usually those segments, I don't get anything from them. But Missoula said in one of these segments, he wanted to slow it down. I'm thinking to myself, what? You're telling them to slow it down. The Celtics had 22 fast break points in the game. No team averaged more than 19 this season. I get they played overtime, but you had 22 fast break points, Okay. Philadelphia, how many times do you have to say it? And I've given you all the numbers. I'm not going through all the numbers again, believe me, because I've given you the transition numbers. I've given you the numbers after live rebounds. But my point being, they are slow, especially in the second half, and Bede was lumbering. This dude was absolutely gassed. And Joe Mazzulla saying, slow it down. No, Philadelphia, you beat them by beating it, beating them down the court, playing with speed, playing with pace, using your athleticism. You're way more athletic than them. Use that to your advantage. I could not believe he was telling them to slow it down. And I get he was like, Concerned about the turnovers, said we got to set better screens and all that. But he did say slow it down. And I looked at it like Brogdon. He's the one guy that comes into these games. He just keeps pushing it. He just keeps pushing the ball. I know I talked about his turnover earlier. But entering this game, 1.33 points per possession in transition for Brogdon. 82nd percentile. This, of course, in the postseason. 36 points, okay? 13 of 23, 56.5%. A 67.4% effective field goal percentage. Brogdon, when he came into this game, Transition three, 39, 33. Transition layup, he pushed it 47, 35. Transition three, 49, 38. Push it in transition, gets to the line, makes it 49 to 40. So when he is pushing the ball, this is when the Celtics are playing their best. So I don't understand why the idea would be to slow it down at any point. What you need to do against this team is speed it up. If anything, play faster, right? The 76ers were tired, which is something else I want to get to here is if you look at it, and this is just something to look at going forward into game five and game six of this series. 
Embiid is getting really tired after halftime. So if you look at it in the first half, and his rim protection is suffering for it, like he's not getting over there quick enough. So if you look at it in the first half, the attempts in the restricted area for the Celtics, they were four of seven. Tatum was 0 of 0. I mean, the guy's taking these fadeaway jump shots, these three, missing everything, doesn't want to get to the basket. Anyway, third quarter, they go eight for eight in the restricted area, and Tatum's four for four. So in these second halves of these games going forward, you saw it. They were easy looks for the Celtics because Embiid wasn't getting over there. That is something I think they should pay attention to when they go back and watch this game is, hey, we can get to the basket a lot more in the second half than we do in the first half because Embiid is gassed, okay? The other thing I'd say is you wasted a huge Al Horford game. I mean, that just sucks. Huge missed opportunity, right? Al was blocking Embiid left and right. He had Embiid completely flummoxed and you wasted that game. And huge missed opportunity because I think Miami is going to win that series against the Knicks relatively easily. And I'll mention the Heat Rail quickly here because I watched that game on Saturday. They took game three, 105-86. It wasn't even close. And I'm just frightened of Jimmy Butler right now. Like I'd say with Tatum, he's just not that guy right now. Jimmy Butler is. And obviously the Celtics still have to do things here to get there. Like they still have to close up Philly. That's why this game was so important. Get some rest for this Miami team. But Butler, man, you watch him and you watch Tatum. He just controls everything they do on the court. He's relentless, right? And it's just so methodical with the Heat. Hey, Jalen Brunson, come set a screen because we're going to get your defense all out of whack because we're going to go at you, right? They're just, they're so ruthless with finding out those mismatches and going after them. And the whole game, Jimmy's getting these mismatches on him. And if he doesn't, it's like, okay, I'll take Josh Hart in isolation. Right now in the postseason, he's averaging 1.22 points per possession in isolation. That's, of course, like really high, 91st percentile. He's shooting 54.2%. But just to put that 1.22 points per possession into context... Sacramento led the league at 1.18 points per possession this season. Jimmy Butler is averaging 1.22 points per possession in ISO. So Jimmy and ISO is more efficient than the best offense in the NBA this season. That is how well Jimmy Butler is playing right now. And then there's Bam who had 17 and 8 in that game. And I really don't know how he played so poorly in that play-in game against Clint Capella and company. I don't. But against the Celtics this year, 30 and 15 and that Miami went back on January 14th, 28 in that game where they beat the Celtics in overtime and he took over in the fourth. He's just, he's such a versatile defender. And those guys, man, that looked like they were done. Lowry is their engine now coming off the bench and he's doing all those Lowry things where he's pissing people off. He's taking charges. And then you have Kevin Love, who I know he didn't shoot the ball well on Saturday, but nine boards, four assists. He has those hit ahead passes in transition. You still have to respect his shooting. I mean, he had five in a game against Milwaukee from deep and he had four in another game against Milwaukee from deep. Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin, like those guys are flying all over the place. And I do think the hero thing in a weird way has sort of helped them, right? Because it took the club out of the bag for Spolster. Because if Hero's there, you you have to play him, right? Because he's one of your best on-ball guys. I mean, he's the second best on-ball guy on the team outside of Butler, but he's so bad defensively, it gives teams that pressure point to go after. And they just can keep pressing on that pressure point. And that club's out of the bag, so they don't even have to play Hero. So there's really not a lot of guys to attack. I mean, when obviously when Kevin Love's on the court, you're going to go after Kevin Love. But my overwhelming point is just, it's great the Celtics didn't have to play him in the first round, but take care of your business because that Miami team right now, throw out everything about the regular season except the matchups against the Celtics, right? Like, that's the team, and the team you're watching right now, that's the team you're going to get in the conference finals if you get there. So that's why today, just such a missed opportunity to not win in this thing. All right, I do want to give you a same-game parlay for Game 5 at the Garden. So how about this? Jalen to go for 25. He was almost there today. Tatum to go for 25. He would have been there if he decided he was going to show up in the first half. And then how about the Celtics on the money line and Derek White two made three. So that's my same game parlay for game five. Jalen for 25 points. Tatum for 25 points. Celtics on the money line. And Derek White makes two threes. All right, man. This it's just a frustrating game. 
really is. I mean, that game was right there for him. I, I still cannot believe. How do you not get a freaking shot off at the end of the game? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Steven Ruiz from The Ringer, The Ringer NFL Show. I had a great article up at The Ringer on Mac Jones and his role this year in the Bill O'Brien offense. We'll get to that next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from The Ringer. You hear him on The Ringer NFL Show as well. It is Steven Ruiz. Has an article up right now at The Ringer. Does Bill Belichick have a master plan for Mac? Steven, how are you, man? I'm doing good. I feel like I get invited on the show whenever I write something slightly negative about the Patriots and I have to come defend myself. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we got to have you on. I mean, if you wrote something nice about the Patriots, too, I'd have you on as well. I'm just, I'm worried about you, man. Look out for the mentions in your Twitter, or I should say, avoid the mentions in your Twitter account, man. Don't listen to the Patriots fans in there. I don't. I don't. I'm like Bill Belichick. I don't. I I tune it all out. Hey, that's a good way to do it. That's one of the things that I would advocate following Bill when it comes to that. All right. So you mentioned at the top of your article that the Patriots, they went from ninth in offensive DVOA to 24th this past season. And if you look at the numbers across the board, they were horrendous. The drop back EPA 22nd, and they were 26th in dropback success rate. Those numbers were at 11th and 5th in 2021. So the Patriots, they did fade down the stretch of 2021, Stephen, after that bye week. But you bring in a guy that was pretty good his rookie season in Mac Jones. Like, I'm not saying he has the biggest ceiling in the world or anything along those lines, but he had a, for all intents and purposes, he had a pretty good rookie season. And then he completely tailed off in year two. So the question I would have is, why do you think they wanted to make the change and go away from the Josh McDaniels offense and go to that McVay Shanahan system, if you will? I I think they wanted to not test Mac, but I think they wanted to put him in an offense that is more conducive to his skill set. I thought he did have a great, a good rookie year. And I thought you saw the limitations of him and that offense at the end. Like you said, they tailed off a lot. Teams started playing them differently. They started to figure out how to play them. I thought a lot of the offense, especially on early downs in 2021, was based around the run game and what I would call like constraint plays, like screen passes, draws, uh, double passes. There were a lot of trick plays. Like the, the 2020 Patriots really relied on those to create explosives. But it's hard to rely on those because eventually teams get enough tape on you where they could stop those, those gadget plays, those trick plays. So I think Bill just wanted to evolve the offense, maybe bring in like a more mature offense is, is a way to put it. And then like you look at Max skill set and why he got drafted in the first round, he's supposed to be this sharp processor. He's an accurate quarterback. He gets rid of the ball quickly like that. Putting him in an offense that has more drop back passing in theory would play to his strengths. Now, Having an offense like that that's run by a guy that's never called an offense before and has a dubious track record, even as a defensive coach over the last few years, I think is where where Bill may have gone wrong, where he may have been a little naive, and where I think it's fair to say that that's old school thinking, in my opinion. I think the game has become so specialized where if you're an offensive coordinator, you need to be like steeped in, in offensive knowledge. You really need to live it. And back in the day, I think people used to change sides of the ball. Like Bill himself started with special teams. 
he was like all over the place before he became a defensive coordinator. So I think that was the error. It wasn't so much like changing the offense and going away from something that worked. I think it was who they decided to run the offense. And I think that's a take that most people in New England probably have. Yeah, and I think, too, like one of the most bizarre things, I've said this on multiple occasions, Stephen, is the fact that, and I'm not saying like this was an accurate comparison, but Bill Belichick in 2021 compared Josh McDaniels to Nick Saban, like how they're on the same page, and he just like allows Nick, or excuse me, allows Josh to do his thing, just like he did with Nick Saban when he was in Cleveland. And so from that perspective, I hear that quote from Bill Belichick, and I'm like, okay, so if you really think that highly of Josh McDaniels, even if maybe we don't in the fan base, right, if you think that highly of him, how can your reaction be, hey, let's have a guy do it that's never done it ever? So you just told us how important the guy was to Mac Jones, right. the team, the organization, and then you go backwards and have Matt Patricia. So I'm just glad that era of the Patriots is over. But I wanted to get to this because one of the big issues is, and you mentioned in the article, they couldn't dial up shots. And Mac, for him to throw the ball down the field, they're going to need to incorporate more play action and stuff along those lines. Because as you allude to in the article, he doesn't really have those playmaking instincts, right? He's not the type of guy that can hang in the pocket and he does get a little panicky when he's in there. And we talked about this throughout the season. So his drop back percentage last year was 16.7% out of play action, which was 39th out of 41 qualifiers. And he was actually, I mean, he completed 73.1% of those passes. But if you look at it, some of those guys that, that need help, Kirk Cousins was at what, 28.5 compared to Mack at 16.7. Tua was at 43.1%. And you go back to Mac Jones in that 2021 season, it was at 26.8%. So we're talking about 10 percentage points higher than he was last season. So the thing that stuck out to me, and there was a big write-up in the Herald a couple of months ago by my buddy Andrew Callahan. One of the things that he mentioned is like they didn't know how to play action out of certain schemes. So it was like they were running this McVay-Shanahan thing, and they didn't know how to play action out of those things. Like, the stretch runs that they have, you want a bootleg, right, on those plays. And right. they ran five bootleg passes the entire season. So do you think now just getting Bill O'Brien back that we'll see more play action? Or do you think it's going to be similar to what we saw with Matt Patricia? Maybe the number is still similar to what it was with Patricia. It's just better executed. Yeah, it's a tough question to answer because play action is one of those things where you kind of need to earn the right to, to call it. And I don't mean like, oh, you have to establish the run like that old school thinking. Like, you have to have the right game script. If you're down 25 points in the fourth quarter, you can't call play action because the defense doesn't care. So I think it's, it's kind right. of a chicken or egg situation where the team wasn't as successful last year. They changed the structure of the offense. And the structure of an offense really dictates not only how much play action you can call, but how effective it is. Like, if you look at the splits league-wide between shotgun play action and under center play action, there's a big difference. And... Shotgun play action isn't as effective. So they became like this drop back shotgun passing team last year, almost out of necessity because Matt Patricia could not design a run game under center to save his life. Like you watch it. <laughs> he said, and I think like, let's talk about the receiver upgrades. Cause it's kind of, uh, I don't even know if you want to call them upgrades, but it's kind of related. I think the reason why they swapped out Jacoby Myers for Juju Smith-Schuster is because Juju Smith-Schuster is a willing blocker and a better blocker. And when you watch their run, like their run cutups, they were asking wide receivers to block linebackers and they like one, they wouldn't try their hardest because they're wide receivers. They don't really care. And two, they just didn't have the capacity to do it. If they, if they did get to their assignment, I think by bringing in better uh, blocking receivers that will enhance the under center run game that will allow them to call more play action. So I do think in that way, they'll call more play action, but you look back at uh, Bill O'Brien's 
play calling tendencies in Houston, they did not use a lot of play action. They did not call a lot of screen passes. They didn't do all that easy stuff that New England did in 2021 to help Mac out. Now, here's the question. Will he do it now that he's, he's back and he's not in Houston and he has Belichick in his ear? I don't know. But based on his past, I would, I would be skeptical that we see a lot of play action. Yeah, and that's unfortunate, too, because I do feel like Mac is going to need that to have some level of success, which if Bill O'Brien's not going to run it, that kind of stinks as well. And the other thing, too, just in terms of the running game that was sort of aggravating going back to last year is Ramondre Stevenson, and I know it's not the most valuable position, but he was clearly the best offensive player on the Patriots. And if you look at his numbers last year, he was number one in the NFL in yards after contact per attempt. So it's like you have this really good player at a position that needs some help from his offensive line. Like he got everything he possibly could. So do you think now that, and look, they didn't, I mean, it's Riley Reef they go out and get who is not a great player, but they did draft a bunch of interior guards. They drafted a center as well. So when you look at it from that perspective and the fact that Bill O'Brien's here as well, and look, I'm not saying that Bill O'Brien is in the Sean McVay, Kyle Shannon, like this great play caller, but he's at least a competent one, right? Steven, right, one yeah. that they didn't have last year. So do you think we'll see an even better year from Ramondre? Because, I mean, his numbers still are, like, even his raw numbers are really good, despite the fact that, really, the coaching staff didn't help him and the offensive line didn't really help him. Yeah, like, when you look at their their run calls, the only things that really worked were when they did spread the ball out and when they ran, like, a, like trap plays. Basically, they were, like, unblocked. They left a defensive lineman unblocked and a guy would come from the other side of the formation and kind of blindside him. I think it's, it's hard to run an offense built around plays like that, like built on misdirection and deception. And I don't think that's going to be the case this year. I think Bill O'Brien knows how to design a run game. He's not going to be calling plays where he's leaving a linebacker unblocked to make a tackle for loss. So I, I do think Ramondre is going to have a way better year. Cause I agree. Like I, when I watched the tape, he was the best player on the offense at times. Like he yeah. was, he was the most dangerous guy with the ball in his hands outside of a guy that plays corner half the time. Uh, and Marcus Jones, like I, 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 it's, I have a hard time keeping all the Joneses. Uh, yeah, there's together. like three of them. Yeah, there's too many of them. Like Jack Jones, I, it's too much. So one Jonathan of them has Jones, ch- change your name. One of them should change their name. The worst, they should have like a competition. And whoever loses has to change their name to Johnson or something. But uh, yeah, I think I, I do think uh, he's going to have a better year. I think the offense as a whole is going to have a better year. I'm not like. Like when I look at the depth chart, it's it's a good depth chart. It's a solid depth chart. It's not one that's going to win you a Super Bowl, but you put a professional play caller in there, and I think you get back to doing a, more of the things that Mac Jones does well. This this could be an offense that was like what we saw before that bye week in in twenty twenty one. Like I think it could be like a fringe top ten offense, and I think everybody is going to look better in it. Like I think Tyquan Thornton is going to look better in it. I, like he flashed to me when I was watching them on tape writing the article. Like he was one of the people that stood out. I think like Kendrick Bourne is going to have a, a way better year. He was obviously in the doghouse last last year for whatever reason. So I have high hopes for this offense. I know they didn't do a lot to bolster it during the off season, but I I can't overstate how important it is to have a professional play caller in there and one who's not going to make his offense's job harder. Cause that's what you could say about uh, Patricia. He made Mac Jones's job harder. Mac Jones was not good on his own, but his degree of difficulty was raised by his coaching staff. And that's something you never talk about when you're talking about a Patriots team. Yeah. And by the way, thanks for mentioning Kendrick Bourne. That was one of the things that irritated me more than anything else last year. Like if you look at some of like his advanced numbers two years ago, they were all really good. And you could see like, Oh, this guy could be a breakout candidate. And I was 
like the president of the Kendrick Bourne fan club, and then they don't play him, which is just. And then when they did play him because they were dealing with an injury, he had like an unbelievable game. He was outstanding. And then the next game, they weren't playing him again. But you mentioned Thornton. So on him, I mean, he was the fastest receiver at the combine two years ago. You mentioned he did flash. He had that like end around that he ran into the end zone for. I believe that was in the Browns game. And we were really excited about him because he was really good before the shoulder injury. And for what it is, I mean, it's not like it's a regular season game, but in those preseason games, he was pretty good. So what do you think like his ceiling is? Is he like a number two receiver? Where do you think he could be? Yeah, I think he's a number two. He's definitely not a, a one. He uh, He's still thin. He struggles when he gets pressed. He, that really bothers him. But when he gets like a free release and he, he, you know, he gets going, he gets that acceleration built up, he's hard to cover. And he's really good at creating separation at the, at the point where the route breaks. Like he's really good at running those deep in-breaking routes. And that's a very valuable asset to have in this particular offense because it is an offense that's usually concentrated at targeting the middle of the field. And having that guy adds a layer of explosiveness that we haven't seen in this offense for maybe a decade. Uh, For me, though, with him, it's one, will the Patriots do a better job of protecting him at the line of scrimmage, like putting him in stacks or bunches or motioning him so the defense can't press him? I thought that was Mm. one area where Matt Patricia, again, where his inexperience kind of showed up. It's those little things that, that matter. I know people like harped on the play action thing. I really think that was a smaller issue compared to all the little details that he just didn't get which makes Mm. sense for a first-year guy. And those little things, they add up. As Bill Belichick will tell you, like basically the whole Patriots dynasty was built on having the greatest quarterback ever and getting all the little things right all the time and never getting them wrong. Last year was like a departure from that. I think getting back to that is going to improve everybody's performance, but especially like a guy like Thornton, who I think needs a little extra schematic help to really get the most out of him. Yeah, I really think now they got to do a documentary on the Matt Patricia season. Like, what was going on there? I mean, there was a point where guys would ask them, "Hey, what do they do? If, what do we do if the defense does this?" And they did—they legitimately didn't have an answer. They're like, "I will worry about that later. We don't know." Which is like, this is an NFL team, and they're used to having like Josh McDaniels there, who is completely detailed oriented, right? The guy's got a million plays, so he'd have an answer for everything. So, oh, by the way, you mentioned just the weapons, and obviously, we were talking about Thornton there. So. We as Patriots fans, like we look across the league and I see, okay, the Eagles go out there and they traded for A.J. Brown and they already had Devontae Smith. So it's a first round draft pick and you trade for a top end receiver, right? So it's a lot of resources there. We saw it in the own division when Tyree Kill comes into Miami when they already had Jalen Waddell. A couple of years ago, Stephon Diggs came over to Buffalo and it helped Josh Allen. Not to say that's the only reason he improved, but it certainly helped Josh Allen. And we look at it in terms of, all right, Juju, you mentioned the blocking aspect, and maybe he's an upgrade over Myers, too, because he's better after the catch than Myers is. So, But, I mean, now you may be asking him to be the number one guy when he thrives and he's the number two guy, not when he's the number one guy. We saw that in Pittsburgh, right? So, But the point being is just, like, you look at this team and you see the weapons they have, and it's like, if you just had a number one option, this would look like a pretty nice receiving core. You got a lot of nice complementary parts. Bourne can do some stuff after the catch. Thornton can be a guy that brings a lot of speed. So do you think with Bill Belichick, does he think that one of these guys can be a number one? Or do you think he thinks that's unnecessary? Because we've seen for the past couple of years, he hasn't put like the big resource into that position. Uh, See, that's another tough one to answer. I think uh, part of it could be like the crux of the article is that I don't know how confident Bill Belichick is in Mac Jones going forward. And you don't necessarily want to tie yourself to a player by like investing into the offense, investing to an offense that would suit him. 
if you might move on in a year or two. And I think that's where some of the hesitancy is to really invest and take a big swing on loading up the offense for Mac Jones. But at the same time, it just could be Belichick's how he values the position. Maybe he doesn't see it as you needing a number one guy, you needing that star guy. If you have a receiving core that's more like a basketball team where you have like certain body types that fit certain roles, you have the big guy, you have like the shifty small guy, you have like DeMario Douglas is probably going to be the, the gadget guy. Uh, it, it's hard to say because he's not really forthcoming about that. But yeah. I, I, I think it's a combination of, of, of both of them. I don't think Bill views this as a team that is one star receiver away from winning a Super Bowl. Mortgaging your future for that is kind of, I don't, I don't think that's a move that he would make. Yeah, I'm intrigued by Douglas and Kayshawn Booty too. Like I, I thought those are nice resources to get late in the draft. Hey, if you're not, if you're not going to do anything in terms of going after like a legit number one, I like taking these shots late in the draft, especially with Booty, who's a guy that, this guy was unbelievable at LSU and then he just right. completely tailed off. I know he was dealing with some off the field stuff and of course the, injury he was dealing with as well so I'm, I'm hoping that one of those two guys clicks and the Douglas thing I mean when you look into him the guy's a freak of an athlete so I'm excited to see if those guys can bring something to the table but I did want to on Bill O'Brien here so last season Mac Jones 19 total dropbacks via RPOs that's from uh, sports information solutions 16 completions negative 33 air yards on those on those 19 a lot of bubble screens yeah <laughs> they, so yeah that was the problem with the RPO game it, it was very simplistic right and I look at Bryce Young last year at Alabama, it was 14.2% of his dropbacks. And he did use some RPOs with Deshaun Watson when he was in Houston. Do you think, and Mac Jones, this is something that we've talked about before too on this pod, is Mac Jones at Alabama was like legitimately the best RPO quarterback right, in the yeah. entire country. I mean, you go back just to the Notre Dame game, you can watch the highlights. He's like 10 of 11. He's outstanding. So I know we talked about the play action, but what about the RPO game? Do you think that becomes more prevalent with Bill O'Brien or is that something you just don't expect to see the Bill Belichick team utilize? No, I, no, I do think they're going to use it more. Last year it was, and RPOs are so tough because they're different style of RPOs. There's the ones that the Patriots ran last year where you have those, that negative air yards where you're just throwing bubble screens. And then there's the RPOs that Miami ran where yeah. they're throwing post routes to Tyreek Hill off an of RPO. Like, that's hard to run. You need the personnel. One, you need a, a wide receiver that can get downfield fast enough to catch those passes. The only, the only like, I don't know, skepticism I have that uh, Bill O'Brien's going to take the offense or the, the RPO calls that he used at Alabama and bring them to the NFL is that the, the rules are different. You have mm. three yards you can go downfield as a lineman when you're run blocking. In the NFL, you have one yard. And they call it more strictly in the NFL. So that kind of changes the nature of the RPOs you can run, which is why I, I would think that an inexperienced guy like Matt Patricia was just like, let's just run bubble screens because those are easy. Everyone knows how to run a, run a bubble screen. screen. Getting the timing down for like a, a slant or a downfield RPO is a lot harder and it's trickier for the offensive lineman. So I do think having Bill O'Brien come in, having all this knowledge, having worked in Alabama, and like you said, he ran them in Houston a, a fair amount. The ones he ran in Houston kind of look like the ones they run in Miami. So if there's any reason for optimism there, that's it. I could see like a mixture somewhere in between. I don't think they're going to like totally sell out like Miami did and lean into the RPO offense, but I think it's going to be a bigger part of the offense. I think it's going to replace the quick game. And I think that's something that people get like confused because we generally put play call types into these big, broad buckets and NFL teams don't really think like that. Like they're not like, let's call a pass play. They're like, let's call either quick game. Let's call an RPO. Let's call a drop back pass. Let's call a play action pass. And last year, there was that famous clip of Mac saying, quick game's 
sucks. Like, let's stop running quick game. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's all. That's what you're supposed to be good at, Mac. If you're not running quick game, then what, we, what are we going to run outside of the RPO stuff? And th- the answer this year will probably be the RPO stuff instead of the quick game. I, I want to see how it looks. I want to see how the receivers kind of work in there because they don't have the fastest receivers. They don't have Tyreek Hill. They don't have Jalen Waddell. So personnel is a big question, but I do expect to see more RPOs, more effective RPOs. I'm just wondering how much of the offense it's going to be. Well, I'm very excited that you said that looked the Houston ones looked like the ones that they were running in Miami because that that offense looked to be like unstoppable when Tua was healthy at times. So that, that that's yeah. I'm feeling good about that when it comes to the Patriots. So you had an interesting nugget here that only six offensive players are signed after next season, which is crazy. And I mean, if you look at Mac Jones, we were just talking about like not great upgrading the weapons massively this year, but the fifth year option after next year, they're going to have to decide on. And so I, I, was, I think he's going to have a better season, but I don't think he's ever going to be an elite quarterback, right? So, I mean, if you look at it, I was looking through your week 17 quarterback rankings at the ringer. And you had Mac 23rd and you look at some of the guys like like in that 20 to 11 range because he's not getting into the top 10. But the Watsons, who will probably play better this year, Tua had a really good season. Derek Carr, who's now in New Orleans, Kirk Cousins, who maybe that's like the ultimate version of Mac Jones when Kirk Cousins has these good years. Kyler Murray's ahead of him, like Geno Smith. So I look at it and I don't really know how far he could jump. I would say like the ultimate ceiling for him would be somewhere between 10 and 15 in that rankings if everything works out for them. So then it comes back to Mac's future with the team. So if his ceiling is somewhere between 10 and 15, like, how are you deciding on his future here? Like, are you just going to pick up the fifth year option if he has the hypothetical good season? I'm saying, are you going to extend him? Because you're obviously not going to give him top of the market quarterback money. So I don't even know how you work out a contract with him, right? Like, and yeah, Mac so. is, if Mac has a good year, he's not going to want like the Geno Smith type of contract because of his age. So I just feel like, this whole year for Mac is interesting just to see like how he develops with Bill O'Brien, but also after the season, maybe even more fascinating because this is a really, because it's not like he sucks. It's not like he's a terrible quarterback, right, but it's yeah. not like he's a great quarterback. So what do you do with a guy like that? It's just a very difficult decision they're going to have to make. Yeah, that's that's the, the problem with these quarterbacks. These like unspectacular, like not toolsy quarterbacks is even when they hit, it's still a conundrum for teams. Like Kirk Cousins has been, there's been questions about his value for the last decade, he keeps producing at a, at like a, a level that makes him that money. But anyone who's watching is like, I know what I'm seeing and this isn't good enough. And I think that's the problem with Mac. My question is like, where does he get better? That's the question. Like people just are like, what's his ceiling? Maybe he, he, he becomes Kirk Cousins. Like what does he have to do to become Kirk Cousins? And I don't know. Like he might be maxed out already. I think you, you, you give him a good coaching staff and you can get a lot more out of him than they did last year, but I really don't know how he gets better. Is his arm going to get stronger? Is he going to get faster? Is he going to change his mentality where he's not checking the ball down quicker than he should? That's always the question with these guys. And what makes it so hard to answer, because it sounds like I, I would just be like, oh yeah, just give up on him, move on and go to another guy. But the more these guys play, the better they get. Like, Kirk Cousins got better in a lot of ways that were unforeseen. Like, he beca- his arm did get stronger. He became more willing to push the ball downfield. So it's kind of, you're just, you're kind of weighing the risk versus the reward. And I think with Mac Jones, my, my thing is, like, he's not even as, as talented as Kirk Cousins, in my opinion. Like, he doesn't have the same arm talent. I don't think he has... He doesn't push the ball downfield as much. I don't think he's as sharp a, of a mind as Kirk Cousins. So it's, it's tough with him. It's tough to project. It's tough to know how that 
the people in the building feel. I, I, I don't even know what I would do. And I'm not high on Mac Jones. I would still keep him around. I think he's a, like a rookie contract quarterback. But once you get to that fifth year, I think you, maybe you start acting like the Eagles were at the end of our Carson Wentz's time there, where you're drafting guys, you're keeping him as your starter, but you're getting day two guys that could challenge him. Maybe you find a Jalen Hurts somewhere. Maybe Malik Cunningham develops into a Jalen Hurts type guy, but I, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough to answer. And that's really why I think that this offseason was not as busy as maybe Patriots fans were hoping for because they don't know. Like the quarterback is the most important part. And until you have that, it's hard to like plan a direction for the team. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a fair point on the Kirk Cousins thing that Mac may not be as talented as him, but if he is going to improve, it's going to be similar to the way that Kirk Cousins did too. And I know, like you mentioned, his arm got stronger, but Mac's going to be better at the things that he was advertised at being good at. But it's not as easy as like, with Josh Allen, when you saw him after his second season, you're like, well, if he can just be more accurate, this guy's going to be incredible because of all the arm strength and what he can do with his legs. It's not like you don't – Mac doesn't have that significant trait that would make you look at him and say, hey, this guy, this can make Mac an elite quarterback, even like a guy in his draft class like Justin Fields. Like we saw how good he was last year as, as a runner. If he can improve as a pa- his accuracy as a passer, then it's like, whoa, this guy may right, have yeah. the chance to like hop into a top 10 conversation down the road, right? Like in Mac, you just don't see that tool that's there. I did want to ask you, though, about the draft because their first three picks are defensive players, including Christian Gonzalez, the corner out of Oregon at 17th after they traded down. And I mentioned Stefan Diggs earlier, but you look at this division and you look at their schedule in general. They have Diggs twice. They have Hill and Waddle twice. They have Garrett Wilson twice. They have A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. They have Terry McLaurin. They have Mike Williams. They have Devontae Adams, right? So, look, it's important that the Patriots address this position because they're secondary. Like, they have good players back there, but the one thing they've been missing is the number one corner. And it's obviously this is going to be very difficult for him to sort of go through this as a rookie against these guys, but what did you make of that draft pick? And did you like Gonzalez coming out? Oh, I love the draft pick. I thought that was like the perfect Bill Belichick pick. And I think with him going to Belichick, I mean, I don't see how he doesn't become at least a pro bowler. Hmm. Like provided everything off the field, he he stays healthy. He's got so much talent. He's just a different type of mover. And I think like you get a guy like that and you give him coaching, like Belichick is going to give him. I, like Stefan Gilmore uh, potential, I think. Like, I think wow. a defensive player of the year potential with him. Uh, and I'm, not, like, I'm confident in saying that. Like, I, I don't see how it doesn't work out outside of injuries. And, and maybe he gets put in the doghouse and never gets out. But he's that type of talent. I, it made sense for, for me for them to pick him. You can't let a talent like that pass by. Especially, like you said, cornerback, like a number one corner was a need. Like, you watch that Bengals game. And those little guys were just getting bullied by Chase and Higgins. It was yeah. like, it, was, it wasn't fair. It was like the NFL should have intervened and been like, no, enough. But <laughs> you need a guy like that. You need body types. And I think that's what we've always seen when Belichick's defenses have been at their best is it was kind of like what I said about the receiver, the receiving room. Like it's built like a basketball team. You have certain guys to fill certain roles. Like it wasn't Stephon Gilmore on Tyreek Hill in the AFC championship game. It was Jonathan Jones which doesn't really make sense when you think about like depth chart wise, but body type wise, skill set wise, I think it does make a lot of sense. And I think that's what Belichick is trying to get back to is putting a a big dog around all these little guys that he's got talented little guys, granted, but at a certain point when you're five eleven and the other guy's six, three, like there's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter how good you are. And Christian Gonzalez fills that need while also providing like best player available value. 
So I thought yeah. it was a great pick. Yeah, I loved it too. And that game, man, Marcus Jones was on T. Higgins. It's like, come on, like he's he's, he's not even like five foot ten, and he's covering one of the biggest receivers in the NFL. So, by the way, they get Keon White too in the second round, who apparently they were considering at seventeen. Like that's right. how highly they thought of the guy, which. That makes me now, obviously, everybody else didn't feel that way, but it makes me feel good that they really like this guy a ton. But if you look at it like last year, Judon had a really good season again. Uche had his breakout season. We'd been waiting on this and it happened for him. You add Christian Gonzalez, you got solid guys in the secondary when we're talking about um, a guy like Duggar who's going to need an extension. He had a really good season for them. And up front, I mean, Barmore, we thought maybe last year he'd take that like year two leap. Maybe it's the year three leap. Like, of course, we saw it with Ramondre last year, the year two leap, but maybe it happens for Barmore, and he was battling a little bit of an injury. But you look at this group, I mean, it's pretty impressive on paper, and they actually played pretty well last year despite not having that number one corner. Now, I will say every good quarterback they played last year, they lost to, but if you look at, at the numbers across the board, they're pretty good. Do you think the ceiling for this team, are they a top five unit, top 10 unit? Like, where do you think they land? I, I, I do think they're a top five unit. I look at this team as... Like, I think they could be the best defense in the NFL. We've seen the 49ers lost their defensive coordinator, so that's a question mark there. The, the Cowboys, I feel like they're, they're going to fluctuate a little bit just because they're so relied on sacks and turnovers. But, like, this is the most sound defense in my mind. And then you have Belichick running it. You have, I think, a, a modern approach. Like, when people kind of suggest that maybe Belichick, the game has passed him by a little bit. I look at the defense and I'm like, I don't think so. Like they played so much dime and they gave up running plays in order to better defend the pass, which is a very modern approach to playing football. And I think they're going to have that same setup, but I, I do think they're going to be a little bit better against the run this year. I, I, I think Barmore will take another step. I, I like the interior defensive line. I, I like what I saw out of Uche. I, I don't know if Keon White's going to contribute right away. But I could see him getting a couple sacks on third down, being a rotational pass rusher. And then the Christian Gonzalez trade, like our pick, it's hard to rely on a rookie to be like the guy. But in past years, like in the last couple of years, we've seen that around the NFL. Like last year, Sauce Gardner was one of the best corners in the league year one. Mm -hmm. uh, the year before, Patrick Sertan was one of the best corners in the NFL from year one. A.J. Terrell, the year before that. Like, so it's, there's precedent here for him to have like an all pro, not all pro, but a pro bowl level season. And if he does, I think it's the best defense in the NFL because you're giving Belichick wow. all of these, these pieces to craft a game plan. And when he has pieces like this, the results are usually pretty good. Oh, we're going to have to clip that off for the Patriots fans that are mad, like in your mentions about the Mac Jones stuff, right? Like because you just said they have the potential to be the best defense in the NFL. I'm with you, man. Like I was super excited when they got Gonzalez because I'm like, this is the missing piece. This is all that Bill Belichick needed. And we go back like throughout history with Bill here in New England, and if you look at his great defenses, it was always, they always had an elite corner. It, you can go all the way back to Ty Law, and then Asante Samuel, he gambled a lot, but he was a really good playmaker for them. They rented, like, the greatest rental of all time in Darrell Rivas for a season. We talk about Stephon Gilmore, the season that he had, and maybe shouldn't have been Defensive Player of the Year, but he was definitely an all-pro-level corner at that time, so I'm excited for the defense. I do want to get to the division briefly here, because... Rodgers, of course, now on the Jets. He's everywhere in New York going to all these games. Last season wasn't great for him, but the previous two, I mean, he's the MVP. And I look at like Tom Brady His last season here. We watched it in 19. He wasn't good. Like his numbers were not good. And obviously what we found out was it was about the people around him, the personnel. He didn't have the weapons. He goes to Tampa. He wins the Super Bowl. I'm not saying that Rodgers is going to win the Super Bowl, but do you think he looks 
more similar, like 80% of the MVP that he was or 85% of that guy rather than the guy we saw for the majority of last year. And I'm not saying he sucked last year, but obviously the numbers across the board were down. Right, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I think he's going to be closer to the MVP level. I mean, you could see it at times last year. He had a thumb injury, apparently, that messed with his, his accuracy on short passes. Uh, but I thought the big issue last year was them losing Devontae Adams and not knowing what to do about it because Devontae mm. was so much of their offense. So I, I do think it's going to be a combination of him being healthier and then him getting better weapons around him because Garrett, Garrett Wilson is going to be better than Alan Lazard or whoever their number one receiver is. Now we have Alan Lazard is the number two receiver. So I, I do expect that to be better. I, I'm just lower on the Jets team as a whole. I don't think they were this team that was just a quarterback away. There are issues beyond that. I thought there were sometimes there were issues with the defense, even though it was good, where better offenses could score on them. So I think Rodgers will be better and provide better quarterback play. I still think their ceiling is like 10 wins, which I, I don't think is much higher than the Patriots. And everyone's so down on the Patriots and so up on the Jets. But like, I wouldn't be surprised if the Pats are a better team, even with the quarterback advantage that the Jets are going to have. Yeah, that would be awesome if the Patriots somehow got into the playoffs after the Jets traded for Rodgers and they didn't get in. <laughs> that, would be, that would be just hilarious. So before we let you go, um, uh, if you t look at the Jets, they're in front of Miami for division odds. They're at plus 250. The Dolphins, or excuse me, they're at plus 230. The Dolphins plus 250 on FanDuel. The Bills at plus 130, of course. And then the Patriots plus 750 to win the division way down to the rest of those teams. But this Dolphins team, man, they beat the Patriots last year when Tua actually played. They beat them twice the year before that. And we know about the offensive personnel, right? We talked about the receivers, Hill and Waddle. But then the defense, first of all, they bring in Vic Fangio, who's one of the best defensive coordinators in the NFL. And guys across the league have duplicated what he's done in different places. And they also added Jalen Ramsey. They traded like for Bradley Chubb last year at the trading deadline. And look, Rodgers gets all the headlines and you can understand why he's one of the biggest stars in the NFL. But it feels like to me, Miami is the more likely team to challenge the Bills for the division than the Jets. Like this Miami team, as long as two is like on the field, this team has a real chance, I would say, to win the division. No, yeah, I agree with you. I think they had one of the better off seasons, even though they didn't they didn't come into the offseason with a lot of cap space and a lot of draft capital, but I still thought they managed to find value. Like the Vic Fangio signing is I think it's one of the better deals of the offseason for any team, whether it's a player or a coach hire. Uh their their defense was so unsound last year. They blitzed so much when they didn't really need to. And then I think you add Jalen Ramsey. He's going to do the same thing that Christian Gonzalez is going to do for the Patriots defense. But I think Jalen Ramsey has a longer track record. He's more proven. And yeah. you, you drop that number one quarter into that group and Vic Fangio, I, that could be a top 10 defense because there's a lot of talent all over that depth chart. Now the question does come back to Tua. One, can he stay healthy? And then two, we saw at the end of last year where defense has kind of figured out how to play them a little better. And Tua never really got it. One, he struggled to adjust and then he got hurt again and he didn't really have a chance to adjust. But we saw like on the Chargers game, the, the Packers game, when teams were in the 49ers game, when teams were pressing them, they, they couldn't really do anything. It disrupted the RPO. It, it disrupted the timing of the offense and they couldn't find an answer. Now, my question is, Mike McDaniels, like, is, are you... Are you this next offensive genius? Are you going to find answers over the offseason? I think that's going to dictate how high the ceiling is. I don't know yeah. if it's necessarily Tua, but I think it might be the coaching staff finding answers to make his job easier. Yeah, man, I'm just thinking about this division now. The Jets, the, the Bills, the Dolphins. I mean, it is going to be really difficult for the Patriots. just to, And the 
rest of their schedule isn't easy either based on like the opponents they have coming up in terms of the non-divisional opponents. So, man, it's it's going to be a grind of a season for the Patriots. That is Stephen Ruiz from The Ringer and The Ringer NFL Show has an article up right now. Does Bill Belichick have a master plan for Mac? I certainly hope so, Stephen. Thank you so much for the time, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Stephen Ruiz from The Ringer, The Ringer NFL Show. That was a lot of fun talking about Mac Jones. All right, by the way, remember, you can leave us voicemails after these games if you'd like at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com, and that's when we bring in our producer extraordinaire, Jamie McMullen. Jamie, man, what's up, dude? We're recording right after the seas. How are you feeling? I'm feeling not so good. I feel like every time we do this segment, it's after some devastating loss. So when we hit the emails, you're saying it's always after a loss. I know. Yeah, it was after game seven last time, right? Yeah, something like that. I mean, it's killer. These games, like you said, these clutch games, they just can't pull them out. It's frustrating. Yeah. Are you like me? Like I was saying earlier, I just I don't have confidence in the team late. And I think it's kind of because I don't have confidence in Tatum late, even though he hit that big three against Maxi, where he kind of shoved him. I just, I don't have faith in him late in these games. I hear you. I and mean, I mean, like you said, he had a fucking terrible first half, but I think for one thing, I mean, t- uh, Brown scores the first 12 points or something, but he's also disappeared at the end of these games. And you yeah, go where'd he go? I don't know. I, I think that, gets, I, that should get more uh, criticism than Tatum. I mean, at least Tatum hit that three and, you know, he's get, he, I think he had like 16 rebounds, but they just aren't both clicking at the same time, which is so frustrating. Yeah, Rosillo and Bill call it the Tobias Harris game where a guy's out there for like 40 minutes and he doesn't. you don't notice he plays. That's kind of like what Jalen oh, was in the second half. And this is the second time it's happened in the series. Very, very annoying. I'll say that. But hey, let's get ready for game five coming up on Tuesday. That'll be huge. And we'll, of course, be potting after that. But as for this pod, Jamie, let's get to the emails. What do you got here? Yeah, we got one from Oliver in Watertown. He writes, I've been very down on Heim Bloom since the Red Sox hired him because I hate the Rays approach to team building and think their success is the worst thing to happen to baseball in my lifetime. Wow. <laughs> Trading bets, signing story instead of Bogarts, et cetera, et cetera. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I wonder if we've been too hard on him. I know it's only May 7th, and I don't want to overreact to one winning streak, which is over, unfortunately. But a lot of his moves are looking a lot better than they did a month ago, and virtually all of his moves this past offseason are looking quite smart. Chris Martin and Kenley Jensen have stabilized the bullpen. Turner has been rock solid. Yoshida's been sensational. And looks like a brilliant signing after being panned by rival execs. Manuel Valdez has been great, making the Vasquez trade look more like a Belichick move than a boneheaded one. While I and many others wanted to sign Rodon, Bloom passed, and now the Yankees look like they're saddled with a disastrous contract. Even Bloom's worst defense, the Betts trade, is looking a whole lot better with Verdugo smoking the ball and Wong throwing out 80% of his runners in the steel-friendly environment. And he had two today, Jamie. He had two in the game on Sunday. Amazing. (laughs) <laughs> He's been incredible. We're still light on pitching and probably overperforming on offense, but credit where credit is due. Bloom appears to have had a heck of an offseason last winter, and the Red Sox are fun to watch this year more than I ever thought they would be. What do you think? Have we been too hard on Bloom? I don't think so. Like My biggest issue with Bloom was last year, I should say, was just the way that he handled the big league club, right? So if you go back to the trading deadline, first of all, they've acknowledged that it was a mistake. You can't split the baby, right? I mean, I don't even know if that's the right expression, but you get my point is you can't make a move to try to win, right? And then also make a move to sell. And I had no problem with trading Christian Vasquez. I didn't. I thought I've always thought he was an overrated 
catcher. He never calls a good game. So I was fine with that. To trade Christian Vasquez away, get a couple of prospects. And I like Valdez. This guy can hit. He's changed the lineup a little bit since he's been up. So, and by the way, Arroyo, who's now on the IL, remember we're talking about him. Is he an everyday player? No, not an everyday player. He's now back to being a platoon guy, and now he's not even playing. And I don't even know what he does when Story comes back. So that was my issue because, like, J.D. Martinez... You're in last place. Trade the guy. You're not going to bring yeah. him back. Trade him away. OK. And then the way that they handled the whole Bogarts thing, it was more about how they handled it than anything else. Like, don't if you're not going to sign him, just don't sign him. Don't don't come out and say he's our number one priority and all this different type of stuff. And don't lowball him before last season, because the reality is it's not about the contract Bogarts got. Now, you could have got him on a very team friendly deal if you just offered him a respectable deal prior to last season. Now, for the Mookie trade, it's great to see that they're getting some value on this as it pertains to Verdugo and Wong. And Wong has been incredible, as has Verdugo's had a great season this year and all that. But the one thing I'll say to the the whole Mookie Betts trade is, remember, and I get it was a shortened season, but he was part of a team that won a World Series. And in 2021, when the Red Sox turned it around relatively quickly and made it to the ALCS, it would have been nice to have the guy that yeah. hit 346 in 2018 and was the American League MVP, right? So... It's sort of like it reminds me almost of the situation where remember when the Patriots draft Mac and it's a year after Tom Brady, of course, wins the Super Bowl and Mac looks in his rookie year and it's like, oh, maybe this was the right move to move on from Tom at that time because Mac looks like he's going to be the quarterback for the next 10 to 15 years. Well, we're not so sure about that now. So let's give that a little bit of time. But I will say that and the other thing I didn't like about last year is. You didn't replace Hunter Renfro with a major league outfielder. Even if you want to trade for prospects, don't have a problem with that. Jackie Bradley Jr. cannot be the answer there. So that's one thing I didn't like there. And the bullpen signings were just terrible. Like Jake Diekman was awful. So I thought he did a bad job with the big league team last year. That was my big issue with Hein Bloom. But I think we have to give him a ton of credit for the way that he's built this team. Turner's been outstanding for this team. And we already talked about Verdugo and Wong. Duvall was really good prior to the injury, although that was the concern with Duvall, of course, was the injury situation. But he's found a lot of guys like I know if you look at Jansen, he had one hiccup there where he's dealing with an injury, but he's back to being Kenley Jansen, one of the best closers in Major League Baseball. And everybody was concerned. And it's a pretty good deal. Everyone's like, well, is is he going to work too slow? Because that's kind of his reputation. No, he's worked out well and he's been fine as it pertains to that. Chris Martin, I think, is going to be valuable for this team as well. So, yeah, he's done a really good job putting this team together. But I don't think what he's done this year sort of removes all your past sins, yeah. right? Because we can't ignore what happened last year and it was avoidable. Like you didn't have to have last year to get to this point. You know what I mean? And I'd much rather have Turner than JD because he doesn't strike out. That's one of the things we mentioned the other day that I really like about this team. But yeah, what he's done now doesn't absolve everything he's done before. Like the reality is they should have been better last year, Jamie. There were opportunities to sign guys or bring guys back and you could have been better. Like that, that to me shouldn't have happened. And I'm still going to hold that against Bloom. Yeah, I mean, I think if you take his entire body of work as GM, still, I would say a failing grade, but he's turning it around at least. And But like you said, last year was a disaster. I will give him a pass on the Mookie Betts trade because I think Henry and co, that was their decision. They wanted him out the door. Whoever they were signing was going to trade him. So you might as well get the best trade you can. And maybe he did. I mean, if Verdugo's an all-star, that's great. Anyone that came in uh, to BGM, you have to trade Mookie Best. It's not like he could say, you know, I'm not sure about this. Maybe you should give him $400 million. Yeah, I think they probably stopped the negotiating price at 300 right? And that's not on high and bloom. But I will say the other portion of that is, okay, it looks like Verdugo's a player, but it's taken like three years to get to this point, right? Yeah. Like he wasn't good last year. And Wong looks to be a really good player. And one of the critiques we had is, hey, why didn't you get Gratterall, right? Like this really good reliever. Well, it looks like Wong is better long-term play than having Bruce Dar Gratterall. But still... 
when you're trading away that level of player, I think you should have got more in the return than what they got when it was Verdugo, Wong, and Jeter Downs, who, of course, is no longer with the organization. He got DFA'd. I think there was more juice to be squeezed there out of that deal when you trade away Mookie Betts. So I I, I still think that, yeah. and honestly, from a PR perspective, it, it was just a really bad, it was a really bad look. But hey, look, Verdugo's been better than Mookie this year. There's no way around that. And Wong's been outstanding. But I, I just... The whole idea of what they got back, I still think they could have got more back for a guy that is like legitimately at the time he was perceived to be a top five player in the game. At the time of the trade, he was a top five player in the game and they could have gotten more. I, I just think you made a good point that the 2021 run, which they came so close to the World Series, Mookie Betts might have been the difference. And if you're a big market club like the Red Sox, you don't need to rebuild every couple of years. They kind of gave up on that window a bit quickly, I thought. Right. And that's the thing is when people say, well, look at it now, look at the trade. Right. And I like Verdugo and I like Wong as players. I'm not saying anything like those guys are really good players, but you can't just like definitively say, you know what? They won that trade because of what's going on now. Well, we can't ignore what happened in 2021. He could have been the guy that put you over the top and got you that World Series. So I just I can't say they won the trade because that and also they haven't won a World Series since then either. And I look, it's only a couple of years. They could clearly win one in the next couple of years and all that. But they haven't won one yet since they made that trade. Right. And Mookie Betts has, even if it was a short yeah. season and Clayton Kershaw was actually healthy, which wouldn't happen in a normal season as we see each and every year. So that's part of the component. But he did win a World Series. All right, Jamie. Great stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. All right. Remember, you can email us at offthepike at gmail.com if you want to get an email. And you can always call us too, 617-396-7172 and leave a voicemail. All right. A couple of quick socks notes as the eight game winning streak came to an end. Just real quickly, I know he didn't have a big game today, but Jaron Duran, since he made his season debut, he's number two in all of Major League Baseball in Fangraph's War. I just found that amazing that this guy, Jaron Duran, who's had an outstanding season, is now second in war. Unbelievable in terms of since he made his debut. Tanner Houck got the start on Sunday, and look, this is already a win for the Red Sox. They took two of three in the series, and I'm not nitpicking one loss against a Philadelphia team that made the World Series last year, even if they're not playing as well as they like to be playing right now. They still got a lot of talent. I'm not mad about one loss when you've won eight in a row. How could I possibly be mad? But Tanner Houck, fourth inning comes around, and we all know what happens, right? So third inning this year, opponent's batting average of 100, and opponent's OPS of 317. Fourth inning is when you're ordinarily, unless you get in a lot of trouble, you're turning that lineup over. And Tanner Houck did. He got the leadoff guy to begin that fourth inning. Fourth inning entering Sunday, 440, 448, 529, 68. So basically, everybody that faces Tanner Houck in the fourth inning is an MVP in Major League Baseball. That's how bad he is in the fourth. And we saw it again. Now, on the season, he's now given up seven runs in six innings in terms of six innings he's pitched in the fourth inning. So right away, stout singles and a bad cutter after he was ahead one, two, got to be able to put him away. And then Turner singles on a two seamer middle of the zone. You don't want that in the middle of the zone when it's a two seamer, right? Against the right, against the righty, you don't want that pitch in the middle of the zone, period. But you want that going in at him, right? Like that cannot be left out. That's got to be going in at his hands if you're going to throw a two seamer to a righty. Then he walked Harper, which has been an issue for him. He threw a slider that was nowhere close. I'll get to the walks in a second. Castellanos grounded the third. It's a play that Rafael Devers needs to make. Now, luckily, he was still able to tag Turner behind him because the bases were loaded, but he clearly could have cut down the run. So unfortunately, he just like bobbled it on the transfer. But a heads up play by Rafi to get back into that play and tag out Turner. And then Schwarber singled on a bad cutter to make it two to nothing. So again, he lost it in that inning. And by the way, Schwarber, that count was 2-0, right? So you're playing into Schwarber there when you fall behind against a great hitter like that. But the issue with Tanner Hauke, he just completely loses control. He cannot turn a lineup over. I mean, and 
He has the bad misses in the zone that I was talking about. And then he walks guys, like I mentioned with Harper. 9.4% walk rate, 74th of 102 starters that had pitched 30 innings entering today. He does not have command. And here's the big number that jumped out to me to put the metric man hat on here about Tanner Houck. His out of zone swing percentage is 19.5. That's 102nd out of 106 qualifiers. That makes no sense. Tanner Houck, who has a nasty slider, like all his stuff has crazy movement, right? His stuff is filthy. He's 102nd out of 106 pitchers in terms of getting guys to swing at pitches out of the zone. 19.5%. How is that even possible with the stuff you have? The reason is his misses are non-competitive. He has non-competitive misses that nobody would swing at him because they're way in the other batter's box. So he just, like, he has great stuff, but he cannot harness it. You look at that number last year. It's at 19.5, as I said, this year. Last year, that was at 29.3. So he just hasn't been the same guy. And it just I just keep coming back to the fact, it's the fourth inning. He falls apart. Not a starter. And I maybe he won't be a starter too much longer because we did get the news that James Paxton is heading with the team. He's going to Atlanta. I was actually starting to believe that this guy was not a real person. I really was. I don't know about you. Like, he's like the white whale. I had no idea who this guy was. Like, like we've never seen him. Like, I know who he is, obviously. I don't know exactly what he looks like. But I was starting to question, is James Paxton actually a real professional baseball player? But anyway, so you looked at his last rehab start. He walked five guys in five innings. He, in AAA this year, six outings, 157 whip, and a 623 ERA in 21 and two-thirds. He had at least two walks in five of the six outings. He had five, as we mentioned, in the last one and four in the one before that. So as he's about to make his debut with the Red Sox Big League Club, he's walking the ballpark. Now, his stuff when he was on from 17 to 19 was nasty. Living on over 95, living at about 95.5 with a four-seamer when he was right. Had a really good curveball, too. You go to 27, he's got a good cutter, too. Now, we'll see if he actually has those still, but you go to 17. 162 with the curveball, 195 with the cutter. And great numbers against righties because he has that unbelievable curveball. Righties hit just 229 against him in his career. So he was a huge strikeout guy, by the way. 17 through 19, he was at 30.3%, which was eighth, or, or excuse me, that was seventh in Major League Baseball. And then in swinging strike rate, he was eighth right behind Justin Verlander. But the question is, what is he going to look like? We've gone through this with Sale for a couple of years now where, and it looks like we talked about it on the Friday pod that, hey, maybe Chris Sale is back as it pertains to the fastball velocity. But we'll have to see where he's at velocity-wise and if the secondary stuff is good, because obviously all that is feel. So we'll have to see what James Paxson. And look, this rotation is 22nd in ERA. They've improved it this week from a couple of really, really good outings. But why not throw him in the mix? See if he can do it. See if he can give you some length, because that's desperately what this team needs. It's the one real weakness of the team, the rotation. And heck, if he hits, I mean, it's a massive win for the Red Sox. Because right now, I mean, if he does anything, it's like, it's a bonus because I don't expect them to do anything. So obviously the Red Sox think he's going to do something, but it'd be a bonus to me. I don't have a lot of expectations for him, but I am really interested to actually watch the guy pitch. All right. By the way, during the loss, Yoshida extends the hitting streak to 16 games during that stretch entering this one 433. He was hitting first in baseball. Luis Arise was the batting champ last year. His was hitting 419 during that stretch. So way out in front of everybody else, 1244 OPS, which was first in the hard hit rate balls. Off the bat, north of 95-plus was third at 61.8%. Almost 62% of his batted balls have been hard hit. And he's seventh in strikeout rate, right? Where It's unbelievable. This guy's not striking out. He's seventh in strikeout rate, and he's third in hard hit rate. That's like an impossible combo to have. Like, unreal what this guy's doing right now. The first hit of the game, I loved it today, too. Just didn't do too much. Went the opposite way. By the way, Casas hit an absolute bomb today. Home run off Taiwan Walker, where the Red Sox could not figure him out early in this game. 
106.4 miles per hour off the bat. And this is hopefully something that maybe gets this guy going because it'd be nice to get Casas going because he's been slumping. I know he, he's looked better at the plate lately, but they need to get him going at some point. Maybe they don't. I mean, the lineup's so good anyway, but it would be nice to have that added bonus of that power element playing at the corner. Uh, Schwarber, by the way, you see his home run. Holy crap. Blyer threw him a two-seamer at 88.3, okay? And he was behind in the count was Blyer. It, it's 88.3 miles an hour in the middle of the zone, okay? Kyle Schwarber will miss it a lot of stuff. He'll strike out a lot. He's not going to miss 88.3 in the middle of the zone. So that's when you knew the game was over when Schwarber lifted that one. One interesting development that happened on Saturday, I don't know if you saw this. It was really bizarre. My buddy Rob Bradford tweeted this out. There was like this standoff between Cutter Crawford and Matt Strom, of course, the former Red Sox prior to the game on Saturday night, where they're both out there like after the national anthem. They don't move. They both just stand there. OK, and they have a they have like a stare off and the umpire has got to go tell Matt Strom, hey, you got to go to the dugout like the game's going to start. You got to do the same thing to Crawford. Strom says, hey, why don't you go tell him? Because he's the home team. It was just weird. I thought it was actually fun. I don't know why they had to throw both the guys out of the game. First of all, Crawford's on the IL, which means Crawford now, he's going to have a bigger fine because guys on the injured list get bigger fines for getting ejected from games. But by the way, on that, Cora said, I know there's a guy that went to the same school as him that's probably going to take care of that. So he's referring to Chris Sale. They both went to Florida Gulf Coast. So I guess he's going to pick up the fine for Cutter Crawford, but I, I've never seen anything like that. I know people have told me like it, this happens once in a while. I don't know why the umps were so mad, but it's just weird. Strom said this about it, and this is via my buddy Rob Bradford. Zero of it was planned, just the anthem was over, and I looked across, and Cutter kind of gave me a grin, and I know exactly what that grin meant, so I stood here. <laughs> he knew, hey, this means standoff, man. If you know me, you know I'm competing, and competition is everything to me, so I kind of felt like I was being called out right there. Looking back on it, probably not the best decision I've made in my big league career. I guess I should have known better and how strict they are with the pitch clock. So <laughs> Matt Strom <laughs> said he was challenged by Cutter Crawford for a standoff. I thought it was funny, honestly. I thought it was pretty funny. I, I don't get like I don't get why they did it. I just thought it was kind of funny. It was a, a weird situation that I, that's bizarre. But anyway, so hopefully Chris Sale picks up his fine. All right, so as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. We'll be back with you on Tuesday after Game 5, of course, Season 76ers. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys after Game 5. <laughs>